This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. My friend Julia Neuberger to the book festival. Let's give her another hand first. The plan is that um, Julia and I will have a, a conversation about her book, but more than the book because we're recording it to use at the end of the year, and I want to talk a little bit about her life and her career, as well as um, the book on anti-Semitism, which will be the first part. Um, then we'll throw it open to questions, and then I'll take her to the signing tent. So let me just start um, with the broadcasting. Have we got a wee dog in here? <laughs> yeah, I hope that was a bark of approval. It has to, <clears throat> it has to be. Yes. <laughs> Well, I love dogs. Anyway, I'm Richard Holloway, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our Edinburgh International Book Festival event. It's my great pleasure to be in the company of Julia Neuberger, senior rabbi at West London Synagogue, and the second female rabbi in Britain. Julia is also a crossbench peer in the House of Lords, and amongst her many public roles, she was the Prime Minister's champion for volunteering from 2007 to 2009. Her new book is a timely one, and it's a heartfelt, wrenching read. Anti-Semitism, what it is, what it isn't, and why it matters. And it's a book that attempts to answer confusions about what should and should not be defined as anti-Semitism. So please give her yet another welcome. <laughs> Julia, before we start having a conversation, I want to begin with an apology, because the Christian church to which I belong has been one of the main engines of anti-Semitism down the centuries. I knew the history, but your rehearsal of it brought it all back with sickening force. So let me, as a, follow, a follower of a Jew Jesus, apologize to you for what we've done in the name of that Jew to other Jews in history. Well, thank you, Richard, and we go back a very long way, you and I, and I've said to you before, in fact, I think on this very platform, that you'd make the most brilliant reformed Jew. I would. So, <laughs> so, in fact, you fit with us just as much as you fit. And the other thing I want to say is, yes, there is a, a long and, and shameful history of Christian anti-Semitism, but despite the fact um, that it's there, and thank you for the apology, but I would have to say to you that probably... Anti-Semitism predates Christianity. Uh, we're not entirely sure, and I try and deal with that a little bit in the book, but it does look as if the Egyptians, and particularly somebody called Manetho, who was an Egyptian priest, uh, was uh, something of an anti-Semite. We don't know, you wouldn't have used the expression. Anti-Semite isn't a term that's used to the 19th century, but he didn't like Jews or Israelites. Um, and there's a, a little bit in, in, in Greco-Roman culture as well. Um, did Christianity pick it up from that, or was Christianity determined to, if you like, wipe out Judaism? It's very hard to tell, but um, there is a bit of predating, I think. His blood be on us and on our children, that great yeah, blood line. Well, yeah. And the, the accusation of Jews as Christ killers, and yeah, Jews yeah. Being modern Jews being responsible for that, and you think, yeah, yeah. come on. Yeah, yeah. No, it's horrifying. Um, it's a grim history, but give us a few of the salient factors that contributed to, to the spread of the disease over the years and over the world. Because, I mean, it, it, it kind of spread like an infection. It spread like an infection, and particularly in the medieval world. I think it's particularly important to recognise how the medieval world was the, if you like, the... the, the um, basin of thinking for much of anti-Semitic thought. It had already been there. It was there in early Christianity. It's there in the Church Fathers. It's particularly there in Augustine. You can pick up all of that. 
But look at the medieval period, look at anti-Jewish legislation, the Lateran councils, look at the anti-Semitic um, speeches made by crusaders. And I think it's the medieval world where you see this really spread. And spread into legislation, Jews were forced to wear special clothes, so people know about the Nazis making Jews wear yellow stars. But yellow badges and yellow hats existed in the medieval period. And also, the prohibition on money lending, which applies to both Jews and Christians, so usury, you shall not put out your money to usury, Psalm 15. So Christians couldn't lend money to other Christians. Jews couldn't lend money to other Jews. So the history developed of Jews who were not allowed in much of medieval Europe to own land or, and were restricted from all the occupations where you had to be in a guild became the money lenders to the Christian world. Money lenders are quite often not very popular. I don't think bankers are very popular now. So I think that there's a history there. And of course, Jews didn't lend money at interest to other Jews because the prohibition applied. But you could lend money at interest to people who were not of your group. But I think the money lending, Jews being seen as tight-fisted, as charging exorbitant interest, uh, why were they thrown out of England in 1290? Probably because the king owed great, a great deal of money to the Jews. All of those sorts of things. The medieval period is where it really spreads. And then in the 19th century, it changes into something quite different. It morphs. It has a habit of morphing. But it morphs into a racial idea. This is the the period of the growth of anthropology, the idea of race, the idea that we are of different races. I think everybody now knows that the human race is the human race and we are of one race. But the idea was that the Jews were a different race. You could identify them. Everybody know about skull measuring and people used to be measured for their skulls and that would tell you what kind of race they belonged to. And the most depressing thing for me, which I didn't know till I started work on this book, was that that idea about race and inferior races and Jews being a different ethnic type um, really convinced quite a lot of Jews too. And there were Jews who wrote about Jews being a different race and who didn't see through the whole thing being a load of old nonsense. Oh, God. The book is called Anti-Semitism, What It Is, What It Isn't, which is just as important and why it matters. So um, unpack, um, as it were, the, the triplicate there for us. Okay. <laughs> in a few of my chosen words, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, I told you we were old friends. Um, so what it is is an irrational hatred of Jews and it is um, describing all Jews as having a particular characteristic or what, whatever because actually Jews aren't like each other and Jews from different parts of the world are, look different, are different, have different histories. Um, it's uh, blaming Jews, all Jews, for something, like blaming all Jews for something that goes on in Israel, as if I, in London, can do anything, or even in Edinburgh, can do anything about what happens in Israel. Those sorts of things. So there's, there's that. There's blaming, there's uh, caricaturing, there's hating, there's even the describing Jews as Christ killers, that sort of thing, although that has largely disappeared, although is reappearing on the fringes. What it isn't is being critical of Israel in, a reasonable, uh, in reasonable terms. Um, and so you will certainly get some members in the, of the Jewish community saying that, you know, somebody being critical of Israel is being an anti-Semite, in which case a large number of Jews are obviously anti-Semites because lots of Jews criticise Israel too. And it is not anti-Semitic to criticise Israel. It is anti-Semitic to criticise Israel in extreme terms when you would not criticise any other country in terms like that. And it is anti-Semitic to criticise Israel and not criticise other countries for much worse examples of the same thing. So I do find it, I have to say, difficult to cope with people who are extremely critical of Israel, as I can be, uh, but who do not criticise China for its treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. I do find it difficult to um, deal with people who are very critical of Israel and are not being critical of what Burma 
has done to its Muslim population and the number of Muslim refugees that there are. So I think that it's, it's context, and context is everything, is everything. And why does it matter? Well, there are various reasons why it matters. First of all, it renders a section of our population uh, feeling insecure, and I think that that's quite important, and I'll probably talk a bit about that later. Uh, and it certainly is something I never expected to see in my lifetime, and I'm nearly 70. But it's uh, that... You know, the, the, the insecurity and the, the, what? You know, this is really happening. It, you know, I never, never saw anything like this until 2016. So what does it matter? why does it matter? It makes a group feel insecure. It also makes other groups, other minority groups feel insecure. One of the things that's been very interesting is the degree to which many Muslim organizations have made, made common cause with Jewish organizations over this because they think that if this is happening to the Jews now, will it happen to the Muslims later? Is this about hatred of minorities? And I think there is a, a, a feeling that if you allow it, if you allow hatred of Jews, does that lead to hatred of other groups? But does it essentially say that as a society we're becoming much less tolerant, much less open? And does that matter? Yes, it matters because of closed minds, but it also matters because of what you then do to people. Um, I'm going to come back to the Israel-Palestine yep. thing, but I want to uh, turn to the Labour Party, which has been a focus of accusations here. We had Roy Hattersley <clears throat> at the book festival uh, last week, and he, he reckoned that he thought the Labour Party had sorted it. <sighs> Do you agree? And if uh, not, why not? No, Unpack that a bit for okay. us, because it's... it's it's, it's another one of those kind of messy, tangled things. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I, f f full declaration, I grew up in the Labour Party. My parents were uh, strong Labour Party members. My, my dad actually wanted to be a Labour a MP at one stage but couldn't afford it. Um, so I have very strong Labour roots. Um, my parents would be turning in their graves. They really would be turning in their graves. Um, it hasn't been sorted. It hasn't been sorted in two quite separate ways. One is that the disciplinary processes have taken forever. And when the Labour Party has said it's going to speed them up, if that's speeding them up, what would slowing them down look like? So I think there's a real issue about the speed of dealing with the complaints. But the other part of it is much more serious. And that's the lack of real recognition of how serious it is and how commonplace it is. And I don't think I fully believed it until I started looking at the tweets. I, I don't do Twitter or Facebook, probably just as well. Can you imagine what I'd be getting? Um, but I started looking at the tweets and the Facebook posts that Margaret Hodge and Luciana Berger, L Jewish Labour women MPs, what they were getting... And this was, I mean, you can't prove that it's all members of the Labour Party, but quite a lot of them said that they were. And it's vicious and vitriolic, and it's being trolled, and it's not being dealt with. Now, part of that is not for the Labour Party to deal with, because they can't, unless they can identify people. But they can deal with it by saying, this is totally unacceptable. And if you really wanted to deal with it as the Labour Party, you'd be standing up and saying, you know, anybody who makes that kind of anti-Semitic comment, is out right now. We'll deal with the disciplinary process, but you're out right now. And if you're tweeting and you're trolling and you're doing that, you're out right now. And if they really wanted to show the Jewish community and others, because it's not only Jews who are worried about this, they really wanted to show they're serious about that, they would stand up and really go for it. And it's very funny talking to Margaret Hodge, and I hope Margaret Hodge will be here talking herself next year, because... She says, you know, her family tried to make her a Jew, the rabbis tried to make her a Jew, Jeremy Corbyn has succeeded in making her a Jew. She was never remotely interested before, but this stuff, which has come since Jeremy Corbyn has been leader of the Labour Party, now, I cannot look into his heart and say he is personally an anti-Semite, but I can say that he presides over it. And that seems to me really serious. And if you wanted to do something about it, condemning, showing leadership would do it. So I don't think Roy Hattersley is right. Okay. Why don't we uh, break the tone a little bit, Julia, and get you to read um, 
a section. This is pages 72 and 73, which takes us into the Israel-Palestine sure. issue, which we're going to have to have a wee think about. Sure. Can't see without the specs. Though some in power within Israel do not like to admit it, criticism of Israel comes from Jews and non-Jews alike, including from organizations such as the New Israel Fund, which some on the Israeli right would like to silence. And those who support the New Israel Fund and support all, others, all sorts of other organizations in Israel, its universities, its think tanks, its NGOs, including many people who love Israel and live there, nevertheless feel that it is not only fair but often right to criticize some of what is going on. Many of the fiercest critics are themselves Jews. Of course they defend Israel's right to exist and are proud of brave little Israel, as it was described after the audacious 1976 Entebbe rescue by the Israel paramilitary brigades of over 100 hostages hijacked by a group of Palestinian and German militia. They are proud of all its achievements, but they become angry when some in the Israeli government or civil society want to suppress criticism of Israel, whether at home or abroad, whether justified or not. We can see very clearly why attacking all Jews for the policies of the State of Israel is so ridiculous, because Jews themselves do not speak with one voice, either in Israel or beyond. The old Jewish saying, two Jews, three opinions, is no joke. The variety and shades of opinion is a fact. Israel is an admirable, creative country with astonishing cultural and culinary inventiveness, a buzzing gay scene, a vibrant intellectual community, a diverse religious life, and with extraordinary scientific and technological creativity. But it has been ruled for many years, with little sign of change, by a government that plays to fears, that is in hock to the religious right, that claims to speak for the whole Jewish people but cannot reasonably do so, and where asylum seekers are less than well treated, let alone West Bank and Gazan Palestinians. The extent to which you feel either of these statements caps the other depends on your standpoint. Like most countries, Israel has good and bad, but what is remarkable is that brave little Israel has stood the test of time. Now its challenge is to make peace with its neighbours, to win back the respect of much of the world while keeping its friends, trying not to alienate them, and convincing its enemies that it's here to stay and wants to make peace. Will that happen in my lifetime? I doubt it, and yet stranger things have happened. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I've wrestled with this issue personally because I'd think of myself as a philo-Semite. I've learned so much um, from Judaism and from Jewish writers uh, down the years. Um, something Hannah Arendt wrote helped me here because she, she said that there was something beautiful about the worldlessness of, of, of uh, Judaism um, uh, during those horrible anti-Semitic years. Um, there was a kind of solidarity and beauty and suffering. But once they got power in Israel, they became like everyone else. Um, uh, they became um, frightened, uh, fighting, fearful, ugly, um, like, like all other nations, which is maybe why some, some people looking at Israel maybe unrealistically expected a bit more simply because of your history of sorrow. Um, how would you respond to her? Because she would have been a fairly strong critic of Israel, but obviously not an anti-Semite. But there was a kind of regret in her response as well. Do you feel any kind of regret there? No, I don't. Um, might I have been in a... I mean, you can't put yourself in that position. Mm -hmm. But would I have been with a large section of the Jewish population of the UK uh, who didn't want Israel to happen in the 1920s and 1930s? The, the bulk of the Jewish community mm -hmm. in the UK was not pro-Zionist. Who knows? That was a, a mainstream view. I think once the state of Israel exists, and given the reason that it exists, I mean, it was because, if you like, of, of, of world mm. guilt mm. over the Holocaust. And that's why I think Hannah Arendt, it's pretty ironic, given that she was, if you like, somebody who was a refugee, who survived, mm. who was mm -hmm. lucky, who mm -hmm. was well-connected. She wasn't one of the ones who was you know, immediately sent to a concentration camp. So I think it's a bit rich coming from her, really. Um, I think, though, 
there may have been an expectation that Israel would be better than everyone else. And that, of course, was unrealistic. I think the truth is that many pioneer Israelis also thought that they might be better than anyone else. The whole left-wing, socialist ideal, kibbutz movement, the Moshav, the collective farms, all of that. I think they did think they were going to create the ideal society. And people who went as ardent Zionists to Israel in the 1930s, my father was one, he came back, but um, people who had had a a, a real idealism, this was going to be a, a better, different, wonderful society. And of course, what actually happens, as with everywhere, is that's what you think you're going to create, but it doesn't work out like that. And, you know, there are still kibbutzim, people who live on kibbutzim in Israel, but most of the population doesn't live on a kibbutz, doesn't live on a collective farm, and Israel has been quite a, become quite a capitalist society. Do I regret that? It's very hard to tell. It changes as a society. Mm. I regret much more some of the things that I would have expected Israel to be good about, which it hasn't been. Mm-hmm. So whilst it's been a wonderful, it's, a, it's gay heaven. I mean, you know, it's a very, it's gay tourism to Israel is huge. It's been really, really good to the worldwide gay community. It's really been rubbish as far as asylum con- seekers are concerned. And I have to say, as a society that was partly made up of asylum seekers, people coming as refugees from Nazi Europe and people who came after the war, displaced people from uh, Germany and wherever, I would have expected, I must say, a very different attitude from Israel. Julia, if I could take you to a little church in East Lothian, Whittingham, um, and there's a pew in there called the Balfour Pew because it was the church that Lord Balfour went to, um, and the the Balfour Declaration of 1917. Um, And if you look at the visitor's book, you will find from time to time entries by Palestinian visitors, and they always write, I've come to see where the great loss of my people started. Um, And one of the things that many of us feel about your both beautiful communities, you're now knocking hell out of each other, Um, and we wonder what can end this, what can possibly bring this tragedy for both people uh, to a conclusion. Have you any notion at all of when and how and if? Um, Any energy back into it? No, at the moment there's very little energy back into it. So I think there are very specific things that can be done in Israel. I can't speak for what can be done uh, on the Palestinian side, but I can speak for what can be done in Israel in so far as I'm involved. I mean, I'm not an Israeli, but I chair an organization in Israel called the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute, which does a lot of work on Arabic. And at the moment, I mean, I'm very shocked by Israel's decision to pass what was called the nationality law last year, which has pretty little effect in real terms. But as a statement, uh, says that, you know, everybody who isn't Jewish is a second-class citizen, which I think is deeply, deeply shocking and not acceptable. So let's be clear about that. So I said, you know, Jews criticise Israel. I'm one of them. Um, but I do think that there is stuff we can do. And the stuff we can do, because Arabic has now been given a special status rather than an equal status with Hebrew in Israel, is promote Arabic. And so one of the things that we're doing at Van Leer and other organizations in universities and NGOs are doing is promoting Arabic and putting great deal of funding into, the, uh, into um, promoting Arabic and translating um, a Palestinian uh, Arabic novels into Hebrew so that Israeli audiences will actually read them for the first time and trying to get more Arabic taught in schools. So there are things that we can do. They are, if you like, quite modest. If you think about what happened in Northern Ireland, it's Mm. the sort of Mm. thing Mm -hmm. that in the early days we did, you know, getting uh, Northern Irish Protestants to learn Irish was kind of a key move. That and the Women's Coalition. So it's those sorts of things. Can we do things? Yes. But at the moment, it's small scale because there isn't much energy behind it. Because actually, at the moment the Israeli government doesn't feel there's much mileage in it to do anything, and the rest of the Arab world is not jumping up and down. No. So I think that that's... Um, I mean, it's, it's bleak, <clears throat> but it's a statement of fact. The other thing, of course, is the real encouragement of Israeli Arabs to 
um, take more and more of a role in the professions as they increasingly do. So if you go to hospital in Israel, you'll probably be treated by an Israeli Arab doctor, very likely. And that's a change that is happening and trying to get educational status up. I think that's, that's the kind of thing you can do, but at the moment it's small beer. I'm sure these issues will come up again in the questions, but I want to move on now, Julia, uh, to your own life. Um, What it was like growing up for you in London, raising a family, having a career, becoming a religious leader. Give us just the flavour of that, because I I want to get on to you a bit rather than this book. Okay. Well, I mean, it it relates to the book in a sense, because I start the book by saying growing up in London, you know, in the... uh, I was born in 1950. Um, Growing up in London, um, my mother was a refugee from Nazi Germany. Um, Obviously, this was five years after the end of the war. And yet, you know, my parents didn't talk about anti-Semitism. If the traffic lights were continuously against us in a run, my father would talk about anti-Semitic traffic lights. It was a joke. (laughs) Yeah, but you can't imagine that now. I mean, that is quite interesting. My mother was a refugee from Nazi Germany, and you could talk about anti-Semitic traffic lights in London in the 1950s and 1960s. You can't imagine that now. It was a totally... I mean, I may have been blind, who knows, but it was a totally benign environment. I grew up Jewish. I went to a school that was, I suppose, about a third Jewish. Um, They didn't do any new subjects or new material on Jewish High Holy Days because too many of us weren't there. Um, nobody made particularly anti-Jewish comments. It was, it was very easy, very benign. I'm an only child, but I had lots of cousins. I had a very formidable grandmother. Um, I spent a lot of time with her. When my father really wanted to have a go at me, he said, you're reminding me of my mother. So, and I think I am growing into my grandmother. It's rather depressing. Um, she, she also, like me, lost height rather rapidly. And there you go, I am shrinking. Didn't make her any less formidable. Um, so, you know, I grew up in, in London, I went to university at Cambridge, it was all, it was all easy, it was all fine, and with lots of things that weren't so easy. I wanted to be an Assyriologist, I was going to be an archaeologist specialising in Iraq. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't allowed to go and dig in Iraq in 1969 because I was Jewish. And I made a fuss because I don't like people saying no to me very much. And so I made a, I, I, you noticed, and I made a fuss. Yeah. And they said, okay, you can, you, you, you can come. There'd been public hangings of Jews in Baghdad and Basra in 1968 and 1969, hence the issue. And the British school in Iraq, with whom I was going to dig, said, you know, actually, that's putting other people at risk. Please don't come. So the following year, I applied to go and dig in just outside Ankara. And the Turkish authorities wouldn't let me in because I was British. And they had thought that one of the British archaeologists had stolen finds off a site. So no Brits were allowed to dig in Turkey for five years. So I was British and Jewish. I mean, I suppose that was one of the yeah. times when, it, you know, but British and Jewish without a great future in ancient Near Eastern archaeology. And indirectly, that is how I became a rabbi. I know it sounds absurd, but it's actually true. Because I was doing Assyriology with Hebrew at Cambridge. And for my second part of my degree, I changed to doing a massive change, Hebrew with Assyriology. And so, and I got an extra year's funding from the local education authority in those days. Can you imagine how different that is from now? Um, And so one of the people who was teaching me said, you should think about becoming a rabbi, to which my response at the time was, well, I'm not very religious and, um, you know, I'm not sure about this. Um, But he sent me to London in my fourth year at Cambridge. He sent me to London uh, one day a week to study with the greatest Jewish scholar Britain has ever produced, a man called Dr. Louis Jacobs, Rabbi Dr. Louis Jacobs, Mm -hmm. who, actually you'll love this, Richard, who wrote a book published by Catholic publishers Darton, Longman and Todd called A Jewish Theology. Some of you may remember it. And it was called A Jewish Theology because you could not find a single Mm -hmm. Jewish agreement on anything. So in large print, he had mainstream Jewish views. And in small print at the bottom of the page, he had less mainstream Jewish views. And apparently the publishers were scratching their heads saying, this is ridiculous. We want the authoritative work. He said, this is the authoritative work. We just have a lot of different views. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I was taught by him. And that's really what hooked me. And I became a congregational rabbi for 12 years, and I did a variety of other things, mainly to do with health, but still keeping my hand in rabbinically. And then 
uh, nine years ago, roughly now, I went back to being a congregational rabbi, and I'm a senior rabbi at a big central London synagogue, West London synagogue, reform synagogue, um, very happily so, but going to retire next March, when I'll have been there for a full nine years, um, and go on to do other things. Uh, Judaism is not quite, I think, as vociferous as Christianity. But oh, I don't know about that. You, 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 uh, pause the differences in where you are, and tell us a little bit about the role of the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, because that's also quite disruptive, isn't it? Well, th so, so I think one of the important things to say is not only in Israel, but generally the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi Hasidic community, has grown worldwide. It's grown in Israel, so they were given special privileges in 1948 and 1949 in Israel because everybody thought there'd only be two and a half of them and they'd all die out. What they didn't realize is that all have 12 children. And so <laughs> that community has grown and is significant because part of that community doesn't even recognize the state of Israel as having the right to exist. And they want to keep very strict religious control on things like marriages and so on. So, so they want to keep strict religious control on the definition of Jewish status. So it's a bit of a nightmare. And they also very often hold the balance of power in the coalitions that make up Israeli gov uh, the Israeli government. Um, but they're also a significant player in other European countries and actually in Britain. So what used to be the case is that the Haredi community was tiny and we didn't really um, take it terribly seriously. It's now, if you, if you believe the censuses of the Jewish community, it's about 15% of the Jewish community and growing because they're still having 12 children and the rest of us aren't even managing to have two. So it's, um, it's a really important issue and you'll have spotted it in the news in that one of the reasons that there's been this huge measles outbreak in Brooklyn is because part of the Haredi community believe that it's against God's will to have uh, a vaccination and in fact their leaders are all saying no 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 you have to do that public health measures matter but there's a kind of folk thing going on in that community that's been resistant which is why it's now become absolutely compulsory with no religious exemption. But you're at the opposite end of that. I mean, your congregation was totally inclusive. How did you how did you manage that? I mean, it's almost as inclusive as a Scottish Episcopal Church. I'm not sure. It, <laughs> I don't know whether I could say this, but I think we're even more so. We had gay marriage before you did. You did, okay. But yeah, we I'll did. I'll give you that one. Um, okay, so so there's a variety of reasons as to why it's so inclusive, and that's not down to me. Mm -hmm. So the community started, it's, so one of the things that's interesting about my particular synagogue is it's the first reform synagogue in the UK. It started in 1840 and it wasn't reform. It wasn't a breakaway. Well, it was a breakaway, but it wasn't the new reform movement as in Germany and in America. It was simply a breakaway from the two orthodox communities, one Ashkenazi, one Sephardi, in the east end of London. And it was because the people had moved to the west end and didn't want to walk, no driving on the Sabbath, didn't want to walk six miles to synagogue there and back every Saturday. So they said they asked whether they could set up a new synagogue in the west end and were told no. So they went ahead and did so. And it was a breakaway. And in fact, some families didn't speak for 75 to 100 years, you know, families that were split. Jews have long memories. Okay, um, and when it started, it wasn't particularly reformed, but it did do some very interesting things. Amongst the very interesting things mm -hmm. that it did was to campaign for girls' education. They were really big into campaigning for the education of girls, which was a big thing in the 1840s and 1850s. And that's the first... Um, the consecration sermon of the synagogue, the minister, who was training to be an Orthodox rabbi and then came to West London Synagogue and served it for an astonishing 69 years. Eat your heart out, Richard, I know. 69 years. Anyway, um, but he spoke about the necessity of educating girls. And so they didn't have bar mitzvah for boys. They had confirmation for girls and boys together at age 15, right from the get-go. And now that is really interesting because that was seriously radical. And yet they still had men and women sitting separately. So I don't know how that all works, but that is what they did. They were also huge campaigners on a whole variety of social issues, but notably housing for the poor. So they were very different. And the other thing they did was shorten the services. So when we had our 175th anniversary, good move, yeah. good move in my view, <laughs> it's getting longer again, I'm trying to cut them. Um, so, but when we had our 175th anniversary four years ago, we decided to have a service like it would have been in 1840. 
a Friday night service, and we discovered that the service would be 10 minutes beginning to end. I know, these days it's 50 minutes, so you sort of think to yourself, well, what have we done with it? So we decided we had to add in some music or people would not think it was worth coming. But clearly they used to come for a very short service and then go home and have dinner like perfectly sensible people. And you look at those early prayer books and the services are very short. They got longer, but they are very short. So they did do a lot of shortening and the inclusivity came because it started off by saying, we don't care whether you're Ashkenazi or Sephardi, the two different groups, with the West London Synagogue of British Jews. Then it decided to include girls in the education. Then it decided it would include anybody who wanted to come. And then, interestingly, in the, 80, in the 1930s and 1940s, they opened themselves out, and I think this is fascinating, to anybody who was serving in any of the armed forces um, who happened to be in London. They ran sort of a club and hospitality for anybody, it didn't have to be Jewish, uh, day and night uh, from, I think, 1938 to 1946. And they just opened themselves out. And then with gays, it was well, well, well before my time. It was probably in the time of my predecessor, predecessor Rabbi Hugo Grin, who mm, many people here yeah. will remember. Yeah. And Hugo Grin wasn't particularly uh, a great supporter of the gay community, but he just said, you know, why should we make any difference? Mm, mm. And the congregation became the congregation of choice for male gays in London. And then it opened up and opened up. And now uh, we were the first synagogue to, do, to have uh, gay weddings in the synagogue, the liberal movement actually had blessings of gay unions before we did, sadly, because um, our lot wouldn't agree to it. But when we raised it with our wardens, who are the people who have the authority in our congregation, it took 45 seconds for them to say, yes, of course. And they then spent the next 45 minutes talking about a very tiny paragraph in the New Year service. So there's no question, it's, it's very inclusive. We run a drop-in for asylum seekers, we have a winter night shelter for homeless people. It's, it's a congregation where everybody is welcome at any time. Let's turn to another subject, um, Brexit. Um, I've got to watch my language, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, my tongue is, is, um, is chained. Um, uh, guide us through what's going on in, in your <laughs> mind. And, and well, I mean, what? <laughs> yeah. Come on, you, you've got the wisdom of, of all this study and, and inclusiveness. And it's quite difficult for some of us up here to figure out what's going on in England at the moment. I don't want to appear racist about that, but... but um, <laughs> There does seem to be a kind of new divisiveness that doesn't seem to fit what I used to think was the English kind of pragmatism. It's, no, it's I empiricism. Know. I mean, it's, it's now passionately dogmatic about stuff. But of course, I live in London, so I wouldn't know about that either. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's completely different. Yeah, yeah. It's a very strange phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think I have got any wisdom about it. I mean, the real problem is I don't think anybody's got any wisdom about it. No. And I, I, until recently, served on a select committee. Uh, where we were looking at what would happen post-Brexit to EU citizens uh, in the UK. And we, a couple of months ago, came up to Edinburgh to talk to members of the Scottish Parliament about it. And the attitude here was so entirely different. It was so interesting to see that the Scottish government was saying to its EU citizens who would have to register for settled status. You're very welcome. We'll make it easy for you. This is what we're going to do. This is what you have to do. Whereas in England, and it was our select committee that had been pointing this out to the government, you know, first of all, it was made very difficult. Then there was an 85-page form. Then you had to fill in a form online, but it didn't work on everybody's systems. And then they absolutely, they're still refusing to give people a piece of paper. Most of us want a piece of paper for these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. To give people a piece of paper saying, you have got settled status. And they said, well, it's all in the system. It'll all be fine. And we kept saying, but, you know, systems sometimes go wrong. Look what happened with the power outage not very long ago. Mm -hmm. Look what's happened when, you know, BA systems go down and you can't actually check in for a flight. Systems go wrong. But we're still having great difficulty. And the difference of attitude between Scotland and the uh, English government on this was dramatic and I think really important. And I just think that the... 
that there is a desire to make things less than easy so that people who are EU citizens, who are in Britain absolutely legitimately doing great jobs, we couldn't run our NHS without them, I, I chair University College Hospital in London, if we lost all our EU um, citizen staff, I mean, we wouldn't be able to run a service. But it's almost as if it's okay to make them feel uncomfortable. And I find that terribly shocking. I don't think I have any specific wisdom on this. I just think I have to say that one of the things that those of us who are shocked keep needing to say is, this isn't okay. You won't be able to run your public services. This actually matters. And it matters both to the people who who you are being intolerant about and to you because you won't get services. It matters to everyone. And it's not about drawing a line between this person and that person. This person's a Brit and this person's a European. It just doesn't make sense. Tell us, tell us about the House of Lords. What is, what's it like? <laughs> I mean, you've got all those guys in dresses called bishops. I mean, and you, uh, some of them are very good. Some of them are pals of yours, and they yeah. brought on Not all. other. Uh, they, they brought in other leaders of other denominations. How, 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 do, how is that feeling? And do you think it needs a wee bit of reform? A wee bit. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it needs major reform. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, there have been various attempts, but it's very, very difficult to get it through. And at the moment, you know, we're not having anything. Because of Brexit, we're not doing anything. So normally in the House of Lords, we have something called legislation. And the thing that the House of Lords is good at, and it really is, and it's the thing I would, would sing, uh, single out, is it's really good at scrutinising legislation when the Commons hasn't got time. Hasn't got time, hasn't got incl- inclination, is too adversarial. When you get legislation coming to the Lords and you've got people who are real experts in that field looking at it in detail and asking questions and asking questions and pressing ministers about things and sometimes even getting changes, that is really valuable. Now, I'm particularly involved at the moment in some mental health legislation. I was a vice chair, one of three vice chairs of the review of the Mental Health Act last year. Everybody across all the parties has agreed on what the changes need to be, and some of those are really urgent. But we can't get any time for any legislation. So we're just waiting for legislation which everybody has agreed is necessary, which is absolutely essential for people who have uh, chronic mental illness and who have acute episodes which land them in hospital from time to time. Just can't get it done. The other thing that's wonderful about the House of Lords, apart from scrutiny, is the select committee system. And the select committees, which are made up of people of different parties and none across venture, they all work as one. And so our select committee that was looking at the rights of EU citizens in the UK had Tories, had Labour, had Lib Dems, had crossbenchers. You couldn't have put a sheet of paper between us. And again writing reports, challenging government, asking questions, getting ministers to come and give evidence, getting, uh, you know, getting uh, citizens from EU countries to come and give evidence. I, I, it's all right. I'm against Brexit. Um, <laughs> so those are really... I mean, those are the good things. The bad things are it's much too large. It's ridiculous. Uh, there are people there who clearly ought to retire. I'm not actually somebody who's in favour of retirement on age grounds. I'm in favour of saying that people should do 15 years, say, or 20 years there, and then retire. I actually don't think people should be there from, say, age 60. Anybody in their 60s, by the way, there is in the youth groups. That's quite nice. Um, But I don't think you should be there from your 60s till your early 90s. I think you should say... 15 or 20 years, and then you're out. You can't be removed. I mean, you can retire, but you can't easily be removed. Therefore, it seems to me quite important that it shouldn't be absolutely for life. A life peerage should be for a limited period. And there are various other things that ought to happen. I don't see change happening soon because actually we're incapable of doing anything very much except talk about Brexit at the moment. And it's really depressing. I don't go in very much at the moment because unless there's something on which I'm, you know, have some degree of expertise, there's very, very little that's sensible to do. 
Julia, we are your congregation at the moment. Um, give us a two-minute message of hope. <laughs> to be fair to Richard, he did warn me. Okay, here is the hope. I think that this period where intolerance has been allowed to grow and the hostile environment that Theresa May brought in has sort of come to colour us is gradually going to run out of steam and I think it may run out of steam faster than we think. So that's one part of a message of hope, that the, the intolerance may in some way be burning itself out within our society. I don't think internationally, but within our society. That's one message of hope. And the other message of hope, which goes counter to a lot of, whatever, of what else is going on, is I do think that attitudes to people with mental illness have improved in the last five to ten years and are continuing to improve. And in our society that has become divided on other things, I think there's a message of hope in the fact that people are recognising that people with mental illness are ill and are becoming much, much more supportive than historically they have been and much kinder. So there are some things that one can point to. If you'd want me to give them a message of doom, it would have been longer. My dear, thanks for that. Amen to it. Um, we've got about 15 minutes uh, from questions, if the lights can go up. And we've got wandering mics. I summon up there already. Wait till the mic comes. Okay, let's start up there. Um, yep, we're going to be here for another hour, right? <coughs> yes, yep, yep. Thank you. And here. Yep. Uh, thank you for that, that wonderful discussion and presentation. Could I just pick up on that last point you made about intolerance? And, and the conflation between anti-Semitism, uh, the political views people express have expressed about Israel, um, and indeed the Holocaust. And it's a specific point. And that is that um, on the Holocaust Memorial Day, on the 27th of January 2011, John McDonald, the current shadow chancellor, uh, sponsored a bill to uh, abolish uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. And it was co-sponsored by Jeremy Corbyn and 21 other MPs, all but five were labor. Do you, uh, this was uh, an early day motion. And it's uh, there for everyone to view on the parliament website. Do you feel that this is a brash anti-Semitic act or do you see it in other terms? I thought it was really stupid, apart from anything else. Um, I think it was almost certainly tinged with anti-Semitism. Um, I know that quite a lot of people feel that Holocaust Memorial Day should be even more inclusive than it already is of other genocides. I have to say that Holocaust Memorial Day, most of the times that I've been involved in it, has been quite involved in other genocides. And in my synagogue, we particularly are keen to do that. Um, do I think it was wholly anti-Semitic? No. Do I think it was completely idiotic? Yes. And I think for Jeremy Corbyn, I don't think that John McDonnell is an anti-Semite per se, and I can't see into uh, Jeremy Corbyn's heart. I just don't know. But would you, if you were going to do that, choose that day to run an early day motion? And I think that that was, at best, extremely insensitive and, at worst, anti-Semitic. Until I can look into their hearts... I can't be absolutely clear. I have a, a, a feeling, but it can only be that, that it veers towards anti-Semitism. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. Um, it's another question about anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. Um, I agree with you that the disciplinary process has been painfully slow, uh, disgracefully slow, and I'm ashamed to say that as a... Labour Party activist for over 50 years, but do you sincerely believe that anti-Semitism is more rife in the Labour Party than in other political parties or in the general population as a whole? I think that it is more rife in the Labour Party by, if you like, linking um, people, people using their Labour membership or Labour affiliation and 
putting their anti-Semitism with it than in other political parties. I can't say whether there are more anti-Semites in the Labour Party than in any other political party. But are there more people within the Labour Party uh, you know, saying I am Labour and? Yes. And if you look, this was the, the, the experience I did not enjoy when writing the book, if you look at the, twi- the, the, the Twitter feeds then I think that that's perfectly clear. It's much stronger than in other political parties. Is there serious anti-Semitism on the right? Yes, of course there is. And is there anti-Semitism elsewhere in society? Yes, of course there is. And when you look at the work that the Institute of Jewish Policy Research has done on looking at the prevalence of anti-Semitism in the UK and indeed uh, not on their own but with others in Europe then it's clear that it's in a much wider population. But in the association of people saying, I'm Labour and this, then I think at the moment you can say, yes, it is more prevalent. Whether it will remain so, I don't know. And whether, you know, if, if Jeremy Corbyn stood up and really said, we're not having this and you're out, and this, this attitude is just not acceptable, just we're not having it, not acceptable, I think it would change and it might change quite rapidly. But until that happens, I think you're seeing that association quite closely. And at first, you know that feeling where you don't quite believe something? And so I didn't really believe it. You know, I grew up in the Labour Party. I was very involved in the Labour Party as a student. I couldn't quite believe it. I just it can't be. You know, that can't be happening. It can't be. But it is. And you can actually look at the data, and I don't think there's any doubt. And if you want to look at it in, in detail, then read um, a book by Dave Rich, who has written about this in, in detail, about how and where it comes from. And, and some of that does come from a, a Stalinist tradition, which has very much come back into the Labour Party, but wasn't there before. So I do think it's worth really looking at it seriously. But it's very hard to say where it is in people's hearts. The other thing... Have I got a moment? Quick. Okay. The other thing that is worth saying is when you look at the incidences of anti-Semitism in political parties, you also have to remember that once those things become said and become commonplace and you've got an echo chamber in social media, then it becomes picked up by other people who aren't remotely anti-Semitic and then you get what people call the elastic definition of anti-Semitism. So you get people who aren't remotely anti-Semitic normally picking up one or other anti-Semitic trope and that's what happens and that's why it's so desperately dangerous. Can I interrupt? Is there anyone here from the Labour Party who would like to make a kind of uh, a different kind of point about this? I don't want us to be accused of just Labour bashing. Yes. Uh, yeah, wait, wait, wait for the mic, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I've been a member of the Labour Party since 1979. And what I want to know is how we fight it. You know, what can I do as a relatively inactive member to counteract what I've... This is something that's happened quite recently, as yes. far as I know. And, and I don't know how to fight it. Um, I think it's quite easy to fight it, actually. But it requires, um, I'm afraid, being more active. And it requires... Sorry. Uh, it requires being at uh, constituency meetings, uh, those meetings that go on forever, you know, those sorts of meetings. OK. It requires being at them and saying, this is unacceptable. What are you going to do? I'm challenging you. And I think if enough people did that, it would make a difference. Yep, yep, yep. Thank you. Hello, hello, Leah. Thank you very much. That was great. Can't hear you. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's better, yeah. Can't wait to um, read the book. Thank you. I I wanted to ask about how you feel, um, or if indeed there is an impact of Israel deciding that two US Congress women will not be allowed to visit um, the Gaza area and, uh, and such, and in fact, the the impact of Mr. Trump's involvement in that. Right. On you go. How long have I got? Okay. Uh, let me just say, I think it's completely idiotic. You know what? If you, if you, and, and that doesn't mean that I think they're good people or that they wouldn't cause trouble. But do I think that it is sensible for Israel to say? that two American senators are not allowed to go to uh, the Gaza area, no, I think it's completely daft. 
I also think that Mr. Trump is a troublemaker on many issues, including this one. And I think that his involvement has been distinctly unhelpful. I am not a member of the Israeli government, very clearly not. Um, I just think that this is always the wrong decision. I always think you're better, if you think these people are your enemies, let them in, talk to them, encourage them, let them see whatever it is they want to see, have those discussions. You may end up afterwards saying, okay, you're not doing that again, but I wouldn't do it in advance. Uh, up here and then up here. I'm trying to balance the, the range here. Yep. Uh, yes, thank, sir. thank you for your brilliant talk. It was really, really insightful. Um, is, do you, do you think, what do you think the link is between BDS and anti-Semitism? I think it's indirect. Um, but I do think that uh, the whole boycott thing is obviously anti-Israel. And because it has spread, this is another of those things that becomes part of a, a, a wider, um, it becomes part of a wider atmosphere of anti-Semitism. The people who started off wanting boycotts and divestment and sanctions started it off as a political move to draw attention to what was going on in the occupied territories. That, if you like, may have been a reasonable thing to do. Actually, it has turned out to be idiotic because the worst feature of it is that those Israeli academics and people in NGOs who disagree with the Israeli government have been stopped from speaking on UK university campuses, and that has to be ridiculous. However, is it anti-Semitic in itself? No, it's not. Does it morph into anti-Semitism? Yes, it does, because then you get people who haven't thought it through remotely saying, oh, well, you know, we're not going to buy um, Israeli basil because it comes from Israel. And you say, well, hang on a minute, was it grown in Israel or was it grown in the occupied territories? And also, are you making sure that you don't take any drugs that were made in Israel or developed in Israel? Uh, are you being purist about this or are you just taking the odd symbol? So I think it's quite complicated and I don't think it's always anti-Semitic, but I think that it can verge on it. Up there. Yep, thank you. What do you think of the current um, Israeli government's alliance with far-right governments in Europe? Yep. Bizarre, in a word. I'm particularly horrified. I have to say, I am particularly horrified by... And it's not the Israeli government as a whole, by the way. I think one should be very careful about this. Uh, it's often Netanyahu himself. Admittedly, he does carry rather a lot of secretaries of state roles because he seems to just pick them up and carry on. Um, but his alliance with Orban in Hungary, which is a distinctly anti-Semitic regi regime, I find quite, quite extraordinary. And I find the uh, fact that he, if you like, um, has done that at the same time as there have been posters all around Budapest and other Hungarian towns, uh, you know, decrying George Soros, uh, and who, who is Jewish, uh, really, really painful. And I think it's just wrong. Sir? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for everything you said and what you read out from your book. Uh, you, you do say this is as much about Israel as about Jews. Don't you think, that going right back to Edwin Montague, that as long as the state of Israel pursues the line it's taking, anti-Semitism is going to be a problem? And that, like South Africa, until there is real economic pressure on Israel to change, things, things are just going to continue as they are. Well, Can you repeat a bit of that question, Alan, because it's, uh, and I think it's, it's probably going to have to be the last Okay, so, the, so, so it's, the question is, do I not think that with Israeli policies as they are, without strong economic pressure, things won't change? No, actually, I do not think that economic pressure is going to be the answer. I think economic pressure 
if you were going to put economic pressure on, it would have to be very, very specific. And I don't think one would ever be able to manage that. So I think that it has to be political pressure. And I think what really needs to happen is there needs to be political pressure from other countries in the Middle East. And I think there has to be political pressure probably from the United States, amongst others, but particularly the United States. That isn't going to happen at the moment. Israel at the moment is, you know, getting on very well with Saudi Arabia. Who knew that that was going to be happening? And I think that you have to say it's not economic pressure. It's actually political pressure that needs to happen. The other thing, and we really haven't discussed that, and I know we haven't got time, but the other thing is that people really need to support the opposition parties in Israel. If you want to see change in Israel, most of that change is going to happen internally. It has to happen. That's how it happens in countries. You have to support them. So you have to support the new Israel Fund. You have to support the very fragmenting Israel Labour Party. And you have to support the Arab parties. That's what people have to do. And that's really important. And that's why BDS has been... A, a, a nonsense because some of those people who would be speaking with a totally different voice from the Israeli government haven't been able to speak on British platforms and that makes no sense okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen we're going to have to end here I've, uh, we've run on a wee bit um, it's a vast and complicated subject um, I'd like to thank Julia for covering it with great generosity as well as tenacity and a certain acuteness. Um, her book, Antisemitism, What It Is and What It Isn't, Why It Matters, is published by Weidenfield and Nicholson. Um, it's available in the signing tent round the corner, um, the far table, um, and I do hope that you'll queue up to get it because it's a book I think we all need to read, no matter where we stand on all of this stuff. It makes you think, it challenges you, It'll break your heart a wee bit, but it might also give you some of that hope that we, that we got from her in our final message. Please thank Julia for a wonderful hour. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at EdBookFest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.